Season 2, Episode 6. This is UX Podcast. I'm James Royal Lawson. And I'm Pat Axbaum. And we are two humans here to help you push the boundaries of how user experience is perceived and boost your confidence in the work you do. We're based in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening to us all over the world, from Honduras to New Zealand. Did you change the intro? I didn't even recognize that. I, I might have tweaked a few you, words in this. You might have, yeah. <laughs> Kim Goodwin is a well-known design leadership guru and really needs no further introduction, but we will try. Kim is a professional when it comes to helping organizations build their internal design capabilities through coaching and organizational change management. She's led design and research projects in aviation, retail, communication, financial services, consumer, enterprise, automotive, IT and many other industries. She's also regularly photographing wildlife in places with no internet access. So you should really check out her um, Instagram account. Um, you will see lots of polar bears um, and other animals that she's seen over the years. It's just beautiful. Mm. And this is the fifth time we've had the opportunity to chat to Kim on the show. And in our previous conversations with Kim, we've discussed, and I'm going to do another list here, um, journey mapping organizational culture, decision systems, and design confidence. And today's conversation with Kim was recorded after her talk about design and leadership lessons from her work in healthcare at From Business to Buttons, which is a conference that is held every May here in Stockholm, Sweden. And if you want me, James, and Per, as part of your next conference, event, or in-house training, we are offering also workshops talks and courses to inspire and help you grow as individuals, teams and organizations. Just get in touch by emailing us at hey at uxpodcast.com. Kim, healthcare designer, Kim. Um, So you've come to the realization um, that you've spent 60% of your career working with healthcare design. And when I heard you say that i kind of straight away thinking about god yeah it's the it's the whole what will i be when i grow up question um and you've kind of got there kind of well that implies that i'm grown up which i don't know oh, yeah. <laughs> my phrasing sorry you're right I, yeah. but yes I but suppose no, that's it's, true. it's the it's the self-reflection that mm-hmm. that kind of intrigued me and started to make me think as well about that kind of yeah okay if i'm honest what what have i spent 60 percent of my um, career doing. Um, so I was a bit curious about, did, I mean, how, how, how did that process go for you? Did you, did you kind of like really understand that all along or was there some, a moment when that realization struck? Um, I mean, I've always known that I enjoyed healthcare and that I had done quite a bit of healthcare, but I never really thought about it. I, I never thought of myself as a healthcare designer until somebody called me one mm. And I was saying to some some UX friends, I said, I, I don't really know why they're calling me that. I'm not a healthcare designer. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was Jared Spool. And he said, aren't you? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I guess. And so it, that just made me sit down and think, well, what 
what how how much healthcare have I done? And and I just I started listing out all those projects and and all those clients. And oh yeah, okay, I guess that's a fair description of me. Um, I mean, I don't think I'm exclusively that, right? But it certainly is a label that fits. Exactly the 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 thing of hunting for a label, mm-hmm. which was a which as an industry, we've got a kind of reputation with labels and having issues with labels. So it's kind of interesting to come to that realization. Well, I've I've worked with a thing, and I can group the thing. Yeah. Um. But maybe what the thing actually is is only is only half the story. Yeah. I mean, I think I probably resisted the label just because. It feels limiting, mm, right? Yeah, and right. and yeah. it, it sort of implies, well, I don't know how to design other things when I've you know, worked in lots of other fields too. And so um, I think the skills are just so transferable. But you know, as I reflected on it actually to put together this talk, um, you know, I realized just how much of how I think has been shaped by working in healthcare in, in some, uh, some values and some procedures mm. and, and, and principles that I don't know that you'd see everywhere. Mm. And so, yeah, it, it seems useful to acknowledge that. Yeah. And I think there is the, the, the transferable skill thing is, is really important. And um, you mentioned enterprise design mm-hmm. today. And um, I've done a fair bit of enterprise design. And I've, I've realized over the years, I actually enjoy enterprise design more than some of the commercial design and outward facing um, design. Um, and, I, and I don't know if that's just because there is something nitty, you know, something about the nitty gritty of an enterprise design project that is rewarding, or whether I, I actually have just spent more time doing it. Mm. So I've, 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 you know, you've collected that insight and experience from being submersed in that that particular, um, you know, label or angle of, yeah. of, of design. Yeah, you know. I mean, I, I enjoy enterprise design too, and I think that um, for me, it's about. The intellectual challenge, right? I, mm. In my experience, the more complicated the design problem is, the more fun it is to solve. And maybe that makes me perverse and weird, but um, yeah, I, I just enjoy the the complexity of it. And what's fun in consulting is is you go and you learn new domains, right? And and I can have a cocktail party conversation about all kinds of really weird yeah. things, mm. and you know I know enough about them to be dangerous. But uh, <laughs> it's um, it's it's kind of fun. I mean. I don't really do hands-on design that much anymore, but over the years, I've I've definitely got to gotten to know lots of weird little details. Some of which I'd rather I didn't know. Like mm. I don't necessarily want to know certain things about how the airline industry handles this or that, or mm. you know what happens with bodies in nursing homes, or you know, there's lots of little things that maybe I could have done without knowing that. <laughs> mm. One thing that struck me was when you talked about healthcare design. And talking about it from the perspective of, well, you're dealing with life and death, but then also the realization of how that is transferable to just about anything. I mean, even to enterprise design, because it's about human well-being in the end. And everything we do has to do with exactly that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that, um, you know, healthcare is not perfect in lots of ways. and, And I don't think most people would point to healthcare as design innovation, although I think that's actually an unfair characterization in a lot of ways. But um, certainly on the software front, they're not really known for sexy right. things. Mm. And uh, and yet, I think that focus on safety, that sort of, frankly, kind of boring stuff of applying a discipline to what you're doing and applying a rigor to what you're doing, you know, there's no reason that we can't take some of that 
without maybe the unnecessary bureaucracy part of it, um, and just get better at what we do. Because frankly, a safety critical industry like healthcare or aviation or you know any place else where there's a lot at stake, they do have those kinds of procedures for a reason. And they are a bit slow and methodical for a reason. And I, I think that in software, we're so used to that Silicon Valley ethos of move fast and break things that we are breaking things. Mm. And um, I, I think there's something to be learned from, okay, what happens when a lot is at stake? What can we learn from that? Mm. The move fast and break things there, I'm thinking about the healthcare design and, and some of the examples you've shown is where you're looking at the the, the design of um, some kind of end, well, end user device. A healthcare professional is using some kind of device or interface in relation to the patient. Patient, And when you think about breaking things, and you've shared some stories about this too, is that in healthcare there's a lot of um, systems with integrations. Mm-hmm. And and the complexity of the integrations, in in my experience, if I listen to some of the stories, is it's there where it's really fragile. Like you yeah. could fix the interface and do some good works there, but fixing the integrations... Um, Sometimes, yeah, I, I think the integrations are complicated, but honestly, the integration is often just a matter of, okay, you know, we have a data sharing protocol mm-hmm. we can use between these systems. Um, it takes a little engineering effort to do. Uh, certainly, there's complexity there, but honestly, I think where the bigger gap is, is in configuration, yeah, not so much the integration, because, you know, in any enterprise system, you've probably mm-hmm. seen this, right? You have some sort of very flexible software package that gets installed and it's meant to be configured. And if it were configured correctly, it actually could be pretty good. But Mm -hmm. people forget that, oh, the way that you lay out that form or the information architecture you use of this or the settings you put there, people forget that that part is interaction design. Yeah. And so that part is just done incompletely or done badly. And that's actually where a lot of the usability issues crop up. I've got experience where we've seen with enterprise products that um, organizations um, decline the configuration package of part of the deal of buying. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's it's crossed off the procurement list, so it's crossed off as a, as a cost saver. Right. You know, yeah. We'll we'll sh- you know we'll go with defaults, or we'll we'll figure it ourselves. Whereas you know the, the cost benefit of of taking that. Um, initial configuration package yeah. is almost certainly worth yeah. it because then you will get that um, custom solution that you've 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 bought. Yeah, and I mean, having bought a few of those packages, I think that uh, the configuration costs can look ridiculous. Mm. And um, I also know from experience that for some companies, the configuration is actually where all their profit is mm. uh, for th- those enterprise companies. So. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder, is there an incentive maybe to be complicated to configure? But but even so, um, what what is the number? Something like 50% of enterprise software implementations fail in the first year. It's yeah. really not surprising because people just, they treat them like, oh, we're installing a new phone system instead of, oh, we're looking at all of our, something that touches all of our processes and, and maybe even some cultural things. Mm-hmm. And they're not really treating it that way. And that's where that's where you get this notion of digital transformation, right? Um, that really looks a little bit more holistically at culture and not just let's plug in a piece of software. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So then, yeah, so the, so we look at the, the human cost as well of 
some of these inter- if you don't do the integration because it's expensive and so on then yeah. you're also neglecting to look at the the long term impact of that on your coworkers on the you know, the the, yeah. the end users ultimate end users but also in a sense then because there is a lack of accountability which was one of the major topics of your of your talk um i've worked with healthcare services for a bit more than 10 years don't call myself a healthcare designer yet <laughs> You, you, you will someday. Uh, you, you need to do the maths. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I've worked on so many platforms, and I think this is where all my interest in ethics started, where I realized I'm building all these things where anything that goes wrong, I don't have... Nobody comes to me, but the doctor gets blamed yeah. because mm. something happens to the patient. Yeah. They are accountable for something that I built. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the, that realization was, like, we, it, it can't be like this. Yeah, but it is like this. This, this is how what we have, mm. and yeah. that needs to change. But how do we change it? Yeah, and, and that doctor themselves, mm. yeah. they don't have any choice about whether they accept the, the right. accountability yeah. or not for mm. what you have been part of delivering yeah. to them. Right. Well, mm. sometimes they have a choice about whether to um, adopt a system. Mm. Mm. Uh, not like a hospital information system because that they don't have any more choice about than anybody mm. else does. But when it comes to, for example. Um, you know, there's a class of products called digital therapeutics, right, where you have, say, a mobile phone app that is designed literally to treat a disease and is um, goes through a clinical trial and gets cleared as a, a prescription product, oh, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or even just a sort of slightly lesser degree of approval, right, that, that is um, not a prescription product, but a product they might refer you to. But they're very aware of their accountability. And so mm. if they have any questions about that product, they're not going to adopt it. They're not going to suggest mm. that their patients use it. So right. if you're making medical devices, you're very aware that all of those physicians or, or all of those psychologists or whoever your sort of clinician audience is, that they are gatekeepers to mm. adoption. Um, electronic medical records are a different story because they're sort of coming in through another path. And one, one big aspect of your talk was also the traceability, uh, which would mean to be held accountable, you also need to be able to show your work, why yeah. it happened. Yep. And when you went through that, it seemed like it seems so simple and obvious that we should be doing this. We should understand why a button is placed the way it is, why we have that text over there. And there should be like a way to trace back to how that decision was made and yeah. who made it, essentially. But we're not even getting close to that in most projects. And people start arguing about how did this happen? Who decided this? And then they change it without understanding the reason and the potential high-risk situation people could be put in if they do change that. Right. Yeah, and they may not understand all the reasons that that change was made. I mean, there's a couple of interesting things in what you just said, right? So one is in a traceable system, you can tell who made the decision and whether they were a person authorized or qualified to make that decision. Mm. So, So let's talk about that for a second. The way that teams work today, that's very hard yeah. to figure out because who actually made that decision? And we would have to start having hard, awkward conversations about, well, who makes which kinds of decisions? And the project management within product teams is very seldom that explicit. Um, it is in in safety-critical companies, right? But people do their, their racy diagrams of... You know, people who are responsible and accountable and mm-hmm. consulted and informed and, and who does what. And they get very formal about it. Um, 
And I feel like software teams in general are just allergic to that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, it'd like, slow you down. In theory, mm. right? Well, it, yeah, exactly. Al although in as... many companies, if you could point to a diagram and say, who's responsible for making this kind of decision? Okay, great. Yeah. Now I don't have to figure that out and have six meetings about it. So, so there are cases <laughs> where it actually would speed you up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, I think, is one interesting aspect of sort of more mature product development processes is, um, you know, there's, that's a big culture shift from sort of the Silicon Valley approach. Um, so that's, that's one bit. And I had completely forgotten what else I was going to say. Um, uh, what did you say? Around after? traceability. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so who made the decision? And then if you look at, at why that decision was made, um, I think a lot of teams, if you pressed on it, couldn't articulate those reasons very well right now. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think the reasoning is always that clear. Mm. I mean, I, I, I said to Per about um, hypothesis-based design. Mm -hmm. um, something I, I try to do with a lot of clients is that push them to, to formulate actual hypotheses. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, reflecting on it after talking to you or listening to you, um, realize, me, realize that is, uh, I'm using that as traceability. Sure, because I'm you know making them think you know because we've seen this evidence, then mm -hmm. we're going to do you know this change, and we're, right. we're expecting it to you know this to happen, and yep. this is how we're going to know that, and you know we're we're aware that you know these people might get harmed in this way yeah. when we do it. Yeah, um, and the other thing that's implied in what you're saying there, which is not typically a thing you worry about in medical traceability, is what failed, mm. right? So. Is there also a way that we can capture just for learning, hey, here's the set of things that didn't work and why, mm. and and make those referenceable too? Mm. Because I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation with the team. Oh, you know, we tried that like two years ago and it didn't work, but I don't remember why. Right. And and so what happens? Well, that team can't tell if that concept is broken or if it was just that implementation that was broken. And so they don't know, should we revisit this idea or, or should we just not go down that path? And Teams waste a ton of time on that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's the it's the insight generator. So it's it's coming to the new insights. Yeah. From the failures, right. so you can right. loop back into it again. Yeah, I mean, there's a gigantic knowledge management problem in so many teams. You know, I think big companies maybe don't have uh, efficient systems for that, right? Maybe they have systems, but they're cumbersome and nobody uses them. Small companies, there's no system except. You know, oh, ask John because he's been here for four years and mm. probably knows. Yeah, he remembers well, last you know, time. It, yeah. If somebody offers John a better paying job, whoop, you're out of luck. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So, in general, I, I can see people listening to this and they have these frustrations and, and they're thinking, well, I know all this, but people aren't listening to me. I'm a designer. I don't have a seat at the table. I don't have that kind of power. And Something that you said, I don't, you, don't, you didn't say it exactly like this, but we want to be treated as professionals, but we are not a profession. Right. Mm. Uh, and I don't think we talk about that enough. Yeah. There is a reason we don't have power, because we haven't gone through certification processes. We don't have mm -hmm. that kind of accountability. Right. I mean, I think we all envision a world where we can say, mm. well, just trust mm. your design team to make this decision, right? And mm. And... I hear that a lot from people. Well, shouldn't they just trust us as designers? And, you know, when I'm talking with my clients, I can't honestly say to them with a straight face, oh, you should just trust your designers. Because the fact is, there's some people calling themselves designers who don't actually know what they're doing. 
And um, I know that sounds gatekeepish, right? And and I don't mean it to be that, but I do think that you know there are professions where you can know someone has a certain basic level of understanding. Mm. It certainly is not a guarantee that they will be competent, but it's better than guesswork. Mm. I was trying to help a client recently um, who is not a designer hire some designers into a small team, and they had no idea what they were looking for, right? So I, I offered to help screen candidates, but they said, you know what, we'll do the initial screening, you, you just interview them later. And so they handed me a, a set of people they had screened. I'm making air quotes here. Um, and and uh, had me interview them. But, you know, I could tell even before the interview that these people didn't actually understand a lot of basic usability principles, right? Uh, there was lots of really horrible form layout in their portfolios. There were big accessibility mistakes and stuff that I could have spotted in a three-minute portfolio review with those people. So... You know, it got me to thinking about the fact that there are tons of people hiring designers, whether as consultants or in, in teams, where they don't have experienced design leaders. How do they know they're getting good designers? They have no yeah. idea, mm. right? They have no way to assess those skills. And so they're kind of looking and saying, oh, let me look at the dribble portfolio. Oh, looks nice. Mm. And this person seems articulate and easy to work with. Okay, good. But they might be making design decisions based on what they like and not not actually based on understanding ergonomics or cognitive psychology or anything. So, you know, when I think about, uh, you know, the Gen X designers, mm -hmm. um, lots of us didn't necessarily come into the field with formal training and so on. So, you know, I, I don't want to say, oh, well, we know what's right and, and we're perfect. And, and that certainly isn't the case. Right, lots of people cobbled together their design knowledge from, you know, from reading the literature and learning this and that, and and so there's plenty of spotty skills in older designers too. Mm -hmm. But I think that, um, you know, at some point we have to be a bit more professional if we want to be treated as such. Right. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, but it's not an easy problem, though. I mean, who who gets to decide what the bar is? And yeah. and how is that enforced? And and you know, should we really have the same expectation of of somebody who's designing the video game versus the medical device? I don't mm -hmm. think so. Um, we well, did mention yeah. about the hairdresser. I thought that was a really good right. metaphor that they actually you need a license mm -hmm. to cut someone's hair. Yeah. Do you need yeah. one here? I think so. Yeah. You do for the same reasons for. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, okay. in the U.S., right? It, yeah. It's about hygiene. Yeah, yeah. Right. You you can pass along infections mm -hmm. and so on and mm -hmm. and create health problems and mm. so yeah you had to have a license to cut hair mm. and that's generally not going to kill somebody but i don't need a license to design medical devices no. that can kill people mm. and that's freaky mm. that is freaky <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean so straight away to get to that stage though i mean you know design is a global thing yeah um you know we're talking to a global audience now on the podcast and you know but all these countries need to get to that point of Working yeah. out how to license a credit and, and so on. I mean, yeah. America's got its system for, for doing hairdressers and for doctors yeah. and so on. Sweden's got its well, system. Well, and, and so. worse than that, I mean, um, in the U.S. at least, it probably wouldn't happen at the federal level. It would probably happen at state the state level. level. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, most yeah. most professions are actually licensed and managed at the state level. Mm. And some by government, some of the licensing is kind of an independent board, depending on the, the profession. So, yeah, it's complicated. Mm. Here in Europe, it would presumably come at Europe level and then be 
implemented at, at, um, at country mm -hmm. level. Um, mm -hmm. but that would be a lot more coherent, right? Yeah, but you'd, you'd still end up with you know twenty seven variations of, yeah. of of the implementation. But yeah. um, but it, yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, but getting to that point of of oh, understanding um, on a policy level mm -hmm. that we need this help to be professional. Yeah. Um, I, I don't get the feeling that we're even on the start ramp of that. No, I don't think we are. I, I don't think it's a conversation that we're having as an industry, really. Mm. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that, you know, we're going to get regulated tomorrow. But I think it'll happen at some point. Mm. I don't know when. I hope it happens at some point. Because, I mean, as a user of these things, I would certainly like to know that they are safe and competently designed. And, and I think that it would uplevel all of us as in industry to be able to say, you know what, you do have to be competent to some degree to to do this stuff. Mm. Um, but I mean, the same thing applies to our colleagues in software development, development and product yeah. management, right? I mean, they don't have uh, that sort of professional credibility either. Mm. Um, I don't think that they necessarily get the same sort of lack of credibility that designers get sometimes. Uh, so maybe it's a little bit less important there. But, you know, when I think about a safety critical system, I want to know the engineers building that are also really good. And mm. and if I think about privacy considerations, don't we want to know that the people building that stuff actually know how to protect our data? Mm. It would be nice. That loops us back to what we said about doctors signing off on, on you know, giving their approval on things. I mean, yeah. it'd be nice if we had someone who could, you know, stand for what we're producing and say, yeah. look, I'm, I'm I'm the one who is licensed to basically say these designers, programmers, yep. product managers, whatever this team mm -hmm. has actually delivered something which I can stand for. Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to be the legal front for that promise. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's this notion that someone is accountable, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, if I hire a general contractor to work on my house, their license is accountable for everyone who's working under them, unless it's a a licensed specialty, right? Mm. Um, same thing in a doctor's office. They're they're accountable for what happens in their office too. Um, some of those other people are licensed in their individual arenas mm. too. Yeah. Um, exactly. But you know, in some ways, they're the physician is sort of loaning their authority, if you will. Mm. So while we wait on that future to happen, yeah, <laughs> which <laughs> maybe a while if it happens. I, think, I mean, you had some really good messaging at the end, at least w w when we talk about. What can I do now? Yeah, uh, as learnings from your experience in healthcare, when it comes to well-being and helping mm -hmm. people thrive, and not focusing on preventing and solving problems, just that. Yeah, although we need to certainly get better at that too. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a big to-do list, right? Um, I, I'm not pretending I have answers yeah. to these things. More, more things mm -hmm. to think about. But you know, I think that. Um, we talk about usability and, and we talk about safety and these are big, important issues. And yet, um, you know, I don't really want to eat a meal that is uh, salmonella free and edible because I guess that's a good minimum bar, but it's not attractive. <laughs> mm -hmm. It doesn't really make me want to go to that restaurant. Um, I would much rather eat a meal that's delicious. And, uh, you know, I, I think that probably most of us got into design because we want to fill the world with better stuff we want to make people's lives better in some way and yeah just usability can do that i mean i think it's important that we not underestimate um 
how much impact we can have by just unsucking a government immigration mm. form, uh, that can be a really big deal. But, you know, I, I think we should also be looking for opportunities to do even better than that and to be surprisingly good and, and add an element of wonder and ease and, and yes, sometimes aesthetic beauty to, to what we do. Beautiful. Good point. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. All right. You're done with me. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I did after listening back to our chat with Kim uh, is I, I started Googling the laws in Sweden to do with hairdressers. Of course you did. Of course I did. Was, um, I sniffed a rabbit hole and I jumped in full body. Um, so it turns out that there is no legal requirement um, to be a licensed hairdresser here in Sweden. Mm. Uh, no legal requirement. Okay. Um, but there is um, an industry body who um, issue accreditation for hairdressers. And, that's, right. um, and that body does actually encourage, other part of their work is to encourage people to get their hair cut at accredited um, or licensed um, hairdressers. So, so I suppose that's a good example then of that's one path that would be possible, I guess, where you actually have an accreditation body uh, where you are. Well, people are recommended that if you want to hire a designer, choose someone who, has, who is accredited from there. Yeah. But what's interesting here, though, is, um, well, one thing is, of course, the, the, um, the difference from country to country in requirements. So mm. America there, we, we, we learned that um, there is a requirement because of hygiene to be licensed. Here in Sweden, there's not a legal requirement. So globally, very different playing field just for hairdressing. Mm. And, and then, though, if you're talking about the accreditation option, you've still got the, the situation where there needs to be a definition of what a hairdresser is. Right, exactly. And, yeah. and a body that then can represent that defined group of people. And that feels like it's a little easier for a hairdresser than what, for what a digital designer is. On the surface, it mm. definitely feels mm. um, easier to, to, to create a, a group there. Um, because if you have the physical work, I mean, what makes, I guess, the digital complex a bit is that it's all of, so much of it is virtual. And, and and overlapping him in different ways. That you know, I suppose a hairdresser is performing a service, and like you've just said, uh, it's a it's a physical service carried out by a human on another human. Um, whereas we are producing um, digital um, products, we're producing digital services, um, and we're producing marketing um, information. Uh, more campaigns we're also producing um but works of reference right so, so yeah so if a hairdresser was producing content on how you should cut your own hair and people get hurt following those instructions that would be comparable hmm. then do her i don't know how many hairdressers do research into cutting hair yeah or or do they do i, mean, I guess they do testing i mean i guess you would i mean you'd <laughs> probably be interested in in different types of styles i guess you can have different specialties there as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but it's uh, yeah. The the digital world does blur the edges, though. Um, a yeah, lot and more. as you say, because it, if we talk about accountability and responsibility, it's about avoiding harm and, and ha holding someone accountable if something goes wrong. And there is traceability, of course, because the the interaction with the hairdresser is there in the moment. Whereas mm -hmm. in our case, 
the effects of what we produce and do can can be far into the future and and far away in in the physical space as well mm, yeah much much more difficult to um understand or to visualize i guess where where who is responsible for for what's happening because there's so many different aspects included in it um and so many actors, so many people involved in different types of tiny decisions. Mm. And, and decisions that they don't always realize they're making. I think Kim mentioned that about, you know, designers, well, designers not always realizing what they're doing. Mm. <laughs> um, and you know, we see this a lot about this, this, this ignorance in our industry, not, as a, not because ignorance is desirable um, or, or deliberate, um it's i think it's again the overlapping and and you know what you do you don't realize what you're not doing i guess but i mean also there's not really someone appointed to be responsible uh, i think uh, kim posed the question who's responsible for making this kind of decision you want to know that even for a decision about where buttons are placed because i i, I guess you could take uh, like a cookie pop up as an example who is responsible for implementing that that, that seems like something that Someone realizes we need this and someone downloads a library and just puts it online. But who is actually responsible for the wording on those buttons? There should be someone appointed inside a company that you can always go to. You can look at an organization chart and say, oh, the person that's responsible for the buttons, it's this person. Just go to them. Or you can, you can look back in some kind of audit trail and see. <clears throat> that would be amazing. And this, this makes me think of our conversation. It's eight years ago now about, with, with Lisa Welshman. Um, and who is uh, the the person when it comes to to digital governments governance and mm. and she talked with us back in architecting architecting the information age um, just about I mean it comes up again and again now chat with her then about accountability um, and and being accountable for the things we do right um, and and you know, she was talking in the context of of doing our best work yeah. and being accountable for. You're personally accountable, um, but there are there are layers to accountability, I guess. But you you have got that individual accountability to yourself. Oh yeah, obviously. Am yes. I doing yeah. my best yeah. work? Yeah. Um, but then you've got maybe you know compliance, legal compliance, or 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 audit trail, you know, accountability within processes. And it's interesting with with when we talked about these healthcare systems. If if I build something that a doctor has to use. But the doctor himself or herself cannot decide whether or not they use that system. I mean, we're I'm, we're victims to this all the time. If you're work inside a company, there are so many tools that someone else chooses for me, tools that control me and my work, uh, that I have no uh, possibility of actually affecting. Uh, we we always complain, for example, of course, in the UX industry about time reporting systems, hmm. things like that. We have to use them. But they hurt people. All these systems hurt people. But who can be held accountable? Is it the person who buys the system? Is it the person who designs the system? Is it the person who says that we cannot invest in the development of the system? Is it that someone in HR doesn't care to listen to our complaints? There are so many uh, levels or touch points. Mm. And yet, like, if you, got, if you got hurt by a door going into the building, then that would be easier yes. to work out who's responsible exactly because the number of actors involved in it are less and the trail of work would mm. be shorter and i have to say i mean just hearing kim 
say those words, lots of people are calling themselves designers but don't know what they're doing. This is a huge problem for us because it's so easy to go in and do design work and have it even look good and appear good but not perform as well as it could if you actually did the right type of research and the right type of design. I mean, you very easily fall into a, well, we get into the kind of what is a designer, but but I suppose at the end of the day, we're creating things and there needs to be accountability for what we're creating and as well as understanding what we are creating. Right. Oh, irrespective of what label we put on the job we're doing. Yeah, I agree. I, I was actually thinking uh, when I was listening back to the episode, maybe maybe we don't need designers anymore because we kind of well, we, when we talk about the UX industry, it's because we needed people who are experts in digital. But we really don't need experts who are in digital anymore in that sense because everything is digital now. So all the professions just need a layer of digital on top of them. And so mm. we keep doing what we've always been doing. We just need we're just inside the digital space now. Yeah. I mean, we've already, we've already moved from, from saying web to saying digital. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're transient words, right? I mean, mm. ultimately, we're, we're, we're going to move beyond them. Mm. Definitely. What have you chosen for recommended listening this time, James? I was just going to say, that's really, really easy. Just go back and listen to all our Kim shows. Um, <laughs> but then at the same time, we've started talking mm. about Lisa Welshman. Yes, so I'm exactly. going to go, oh, no, now you've got to listen to all the Kim ones and all the Lisa ones. Yes. But um, no, I'm going to stick to my guns and say, yep, um, all the Kim shows. So mm. that's ep- and these are all series one or season one. Um, 93, 192, 221, and 262. There will be a link in the show notes that you can click on to get to those. Or you can just doom scroll for ages, <laughs> wherever you are now, <laughs> and eventually you will get to 93. <laughs> I mean, it, just, yeah, if you listen to all of those in a row, you will be so much smarter within a week. Oh, God, yeah. Really. Perry, you should do it. We should do it. We should do it. Yes, yeah. definitely. And also, if you'd like to contribute to funding or producing UX Podcast, then visit uxpodcast.com slash support. Or even easier is just email us and volunteer to help. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. the difference between an oral thermometer and a rectal thermometer? (laughs) 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 Don't start laughing. We haven't got to the punchline. I don't know why I should be asking this, but um, James, what is the difference between an oral thermometer and a rectal thermometer? The taste. Oh, oh, yeah.